So, people of God in Christ, <clears throat> this is now the third of the uh, seven letters in Revelation. And as we have already considered the uh, first two letters, the thing that may occur to us now for the third time is that Christ begins with a commendation. And uh, for a third time, Christ commends the church for their perseverance in the face of persecution. In the first letter, Christ says to the church in Ephesus, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. In the second letter, he says to the church in Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who are a synagogue of Satan. And now in the third letter uh, to the uh, church in, in Pergamum, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And it goes on to speak of one particular brother from among their number, uh, a man by the name of Antipas, who was uh, a faithful witness for Christ, even as he was martyred for his faith. So for a third time, we hear Christ commending the church, and I think that's just a great comfort. Christ commends the church for her faithfulness, even in the face of... uh, of persecution. However, we also hear for the third time that there is a charge to be brought. Uh, in the first letter, again, for the sake of review, the, the charge of Christ against the church in Ephesus was that they had abandoned the love they had at first. Other versions saying, uh, say, say uh, their first love. Uh, their hearts had grown cold in their love for Christ. Uh, They had been faithful in so many other areas of ministry, but they had lost their great esteem, it would seem, for Christ and their right fear of him. Then in the second letter, the charge of Christ was not so much against the church as it was the charge or the call to suffer even further for Christ. Do not fear what you are about to suffer says Christ. And now in this third letter, the charge of Christ is that while they had been faithful in confessing the name of Christ, yet they had made compromises within the moral life of the church. So brothers and sisters, two wrongs don't make a right. Uh, We all know that saying, but uh, here we need to consider another saying Uh, that a right doesn't cover over or excuse a wrong. In other words, just because we are doing one thing right, that doesn't give us a license to live unfaithfully in another area of our lives. And I think we all need to hear this, because uh, don't we tend to reason? Isn't it very easy for us, according to the flesh, to think like this? Well, I go to church and I give to the church, Uh, So this other thing that uh, I'm doing just doesn't matter all that much. Or we say to ourselves, of course, most likely, we say, uh, I'm a good person. I I generally listen to my parents and I I do as I'm told. I do my chores. I try to be kind to others. So this other activity uh, of which I'm so fond, uh, does it really matter if it doesn't quite fit as well? Uh, in the Christian life. 
Here in this third letter, Christ certainly commends the church for holding fast to his name, but that didn't mean that Christ was prepared to overlook certain things going on in the church, specifically, in this case, the matter of sexual sin within the congregation. So let's start with uh, the commendation of Christ once again. Let's note that uh, the church in Pergamum was facing stiff persecution. Uh, One of them had even been put to death in his confession uh, of Christ. But the church was standing firm. I I know where you live, says, says Christ, where Satan's throne is. And at the end of verse 13, he again refers to their city as where Satan dwells. Yet, continues Christ, you hold fast to my name. Once again, we hear the clear commendation of Christ, and we also see the clear centrality of Christ. We hear something that uh, really shouldn't have to be said, namely that Christianity is about Christ, and that Christians are those who confess the name of Christ. But do we? Whenever we gather in worship, whenever we open our mouths to pray, whenever we speak openly of our faith, we should endeavor to name the name of Christ. If we would preach the word of God, that should mean preaching Christ. If we would be reformed, upholding the reformed faith, that should mean upholding a Christ-centered gospel and faith. But otherwise, let each of us ask himself or herself this question, where is Christ in my life? Am I holding fast to his name? Where is Christ in my meditation and reflection throughout the week? Where is Christ in my speech, in my verbal witness to others? Do others know me as a God person, a religious type, someone who goes to church, or do they know me as a Christian? Now, we don't live in a culture where we are uh, likely to be forced either to deny Christ and live or to confess Christ and die. Uh, That day may come, and uh, it will do us good to think the matter through ahead of time. But that in itself raises the question, What do we think of Christ even now? For us, whether or not we confess Christ may not be revealed to the world in a a moment of intense persecution, but the question remains, do do we confess Christ starting even in our hearts? Are we, are we Christians in some general sense because we generally conform to a, a certain cultural image? Or are we Christians in the specific sense of personally reflecting, personally confessing the name of Christ? And do we see the difference? From day to day and week to week, no one is calling upon us to deny Christ, thus giving us the opportunity to confess Christ openly and hold fast to his name. So it's largely at least for now, up to you and it's up to me to ask ourselves, do I confess Christ? Do I know Christ from God's word? And do I confess him holding fast to his name? The thing I'm getting at here is is that the church can actually be a, 
a quite dangerous place, a place where unbelief can, can go undetected for years. If a person is active in the church, worshiping week to week, uh, no one may think to, st- to stop you and to ask, uh, to ask you what you think about Christ, whether you confess him and hold fast to his name. And those who have made a public profession of their faith have at least once stood before the church to confess the name of Christ. But, but wouldn't it do us good to confess his name often? And on a very personal level, I'm not suggesting that we should switch to a, a, a repetition of a formal profession of faith, much as we don't uh, hold to a, a repetition of the sacrament of baptism for a person. But what I am suggesting is that we learn to speak of Christ within the church. The mark of true faith is is not so much a matter of whether someone believes in God. James writes, even the demons believe in God and they they shudder. It's not so much a matter of using some spiritual vocabulary, saying the Lord this and the Spirit that or Alleluia. The first question of true faith is whether someone confesses the name of Christ. And so it is that Christ commends the church in Pergamum And he commends them, not for remaining true to themselves, or true to the church, or even true to God in some general sense. He says, rather, you have have held fast to my name. And he commends them because they have not renounced their faith in him. But then we need to consider the charge that Christ brings against the church in Pergamum. The charge of Christ is that they were, as we've said, making compromises in the moral life of the church. You have uh, given me your lip service, we might hear Christ saying. Uh, You continue (coughs) to confess my name when so many others have cut and run. Um, But there is a problem within the life of your church. And we need to take note that it didn't even seem to be a a widespread problem. Uh, It certainly wasn't that some great number of people within the church had begun to live immorally. Verse 14 simply says, But I, I, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So here's a a good place to point out how valuable our knowledge of the Old Testament will be in understanding the book of Revelation. That connection is often not made and should be. Uh, It's true not only here with this reference to Balaam and Balak, but also uh, at so many other points uh, in the book of Revelation as well. If a, if a certain image within the book of Revelation seems overly confusing or strange to us, it may be that if we knew our Old Testament a little better, that uh, strangeness would not uh, be so uh, significant. And that means that uh, if someone is serious about studying the book of Revelation, they, they ought to take the time to study the Old Testament 
Uh, There is good reason, after all, why this book comes last in the canon of Scripture, because uh, I think it was assumed that uh, those who read Revelation will do so having started with Genesis. Uh, Reading on through the Hebrew Scriptures, continuing through the Gospels, through the Epistles, and on to the end. Only then will we have the best opportunity, still difficult, but the best opportunity to understand uh, particularly these seven uh, letters given to the Apostle John and more generally to the entire uh, book of Revelation. But here it's quite simple. Uh, Any cross-reference Bible will point us back to the book of Numbers to understand the reference to Balaam. Balaam was a a false prophet of sorts. Uh, He practiced sorcery, and uh, he was called upon by Balak, the king of Moab, uh, to curse Israel. Balak saw that uh, he would not be able to defeat Israel, and as they passed through his territory on their way to the promised land, he, he tried to bribe, if you remember the story, he tried to bribe Balaam to put a curse on, on God's people. Uh, being the sovereign God that he is, the Lord would not allow Balaam to do any such thing, so that instead of cursing Israel, Balaam blessed them three times. In fact, Balaam ended up blessing Israel. So what was left to do then? Uh, they couldn't fight against Israel. They, they, they couldn't curse them. So they went to, we might say, plan C, uh, which is to entice them into sin. Uh, the women of Moab went forth as willing women. And uh, being men, uh, the men of Israel fell right into that trap. As the saying goes, the best of men are men at best. Uh, with the Lord God Almighty on their side, they, they couldn't be beaten in war, they couldn't be cursed, but their weakness was how given they were to indulge themselves. So for the sake of sex, they worshipped other gods, and for the sake of some Moabite cuisine, uh, instead of their tiresome manna, they forsook the one true God. And so Christ's charge against the church in Pergamum is uh, that some of them had done the same thing. They were indulging the flesh. And and we ought to be clear that food and and sex are not inherently evil things. God's creation is a a good creation. And it was given to mankind for their good. But while food and sex are not inherently bad things, they are very dangerous things, as I think we all know given how weak we are and uh, how prone we are to shift our loyalties for the sake of a bit of pleasure, for the sake of sexual pleasure. Some of them had given in to sensuality and promiscuity for the sake of a meal, and who doesn't love a, a feast? But for the sake of food, they had given themselves to the pagan worship that occasioned the feast. And this, of course, was no small matter. Even more, it was no small matter that the church was allowing this to go on. Again, it wasn't that the whole church, or even a majority of the church, had taken up such behavior. 
But the secondary charge, if you will, the corresponding charge was allowing this to go on without recourse, without confrontation and discipline in the church. And that's always the easiest thing to do. We're experts at uh, making excuses for ourselves, but we're also not so bad at making excuses for others as well. And after all, who likes confrontation? Who wants to shine a spotlight on the negative? Especially when it's, it's just some who were doing it. Nevertheless, Christ, can we hear it? Christ charges the church with wrongdoing. And he issues the warning to the church as a whole. We need to understand that for members of the body of Christ, nobody's sin is simply their own personal sin. Here's the third point. The believer's sin is the church's sin. The Apostle Paul makes it clear in his writing to the church uh, that the church is the body of Christ. And uh, just as the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, uh, nor can the head uh, to the feet, I have no, say to the feet, I have no need of you. Well, so no member of the church can say, this is my sin. It doesn't affect you. And it's none of your business. We live in a culture... I'm sure you're aware of extreme individualism. And, and someone might be tempted to ob- object. Who are, who are you to tell me I'm wrong or to, or, or to tell me uh, that I need to repent? But the sin of each member, you see, becomes the sin of the body. If your hand sends, your foot is not innocent. And so the sin of each member becomes the sin of of the body. The analogy plays out, does it not? And so it is that that one of the marks of the true church discerned from God's word is the faithful practice of church discipline. Let's be clear that it's uh, it's not the total absence of sin that that marks the the true church, but the willingness of the church to call sin for what it is and to confront sin in the lives of those who confess the name of Christ. And it's not that every individual sin needs to be confronted, but we're talking about sin that is ongoing. We're talking about sin that continues without remorse. We're talking about sin that any particular member is no longer struggling against. So are we still willing, are we still willing to submit our lives to the supervision of the church? And I say, are we still willing? Because everyone who has made a profession of their faith has already done so once. One of the queries of of church membership is, uh, do you promise to submit in the Lord to the teaching and government of this church as being based upon the scriptures? And in case you should need correction in doctrine or life, do you promise to respect the authority and discipline of the church? Such questions are asked and vowed upon profession of faith in this church, and other Reformed churches have, have similar questions and the one making profession of faith says I do but do we still 
It's one thing to confess theoretically that the church bears the authority of Christ. It's, it, it's quite another thing to submit to the church's authority over time. But such is, is both the theory, that is the theology, as well as the practice of the church. And here's where we need to pay close attention to the particular part of John's vision of Christ highlighted in this letter. You'll remember that, uh, that uh, the vision of Christ in um, verses 12 through 17 of chapter 1 serves as the introduction to these seven letters, and a certain aspect of that vision is highlighted with each letter. Here, in this third letter, we hear again of the sharp, two-edged sword coming forth from the mouth of Christ. Verse 12 says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. And in verse 16, Christ says, Therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So what we're seeing here is that the mouth of Christ would seem to be the, the instrument of discipline. In, in other words, it's the word of Christ that carries the ultimate authority and that carries out the ministry of discipline. And so it is that we need to understand the ministry of discipline much more broadly than we tend to see it. When we hear the words church discipline, I'm guessing that we think only of that official, more formal ministry of the elders. But first of all, the ministry of discipline begins with self-discipline. It begins with each of us learning to discipline him or herself by spending time in God's Word. And the point of opening our Bibles and studying the Word each day is, is not just for the sake of spirituality, however we want to define that, the point is not just to be spiritual, but to find, or, or nor to find, you know, just some inspiration uh, in the pages of Scripture. It's not just to be warmed by the Spirit. It's not for any other reason that we might just find agreeable uh, from day to day. The point is to know what God would have us believe and how God would have us to live. And even more, the point is repentance. So that we should open our Bibles with the prayer, Teach me, O Christ, correct me by the sword of your mouth. Correct me. Nail me to the wall if you need to. Just don't let me go my own way. Secondly, the ministry of discipline happens every Sunday in the preaching of the Word. You're under discipline right now, I hate to tell you that. If you want to shock someone, tell them, yeah, I, I came under church discipline this week. But then go on to say, I sat under the preaching of the Word. Because the point of preaching, to be sure, is confrontation and correction. Yes, commendation and encouragement, but also confrontation and correction. And that's what we should expect because God is clear in his word that this is what his word will do in the hearts and lives of people, of the people he loves. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, 
For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Most of the time, the preacher probably doesn't even know he's doing it, but if he preaches the word, people will be convicted and corrected as needed by the Holy Spirit. The question, of course, is whether we will receive that ministry of discipline willingly and to do so out of our love for Christ. If not, then thirdly, yes, there may be the need for church discipline in in the the formal official sense when the elders of the church are compelled to call and and visit and and to say something's not right in your life and it would seem to us that you're not addressing it it's 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 ongoing and we do not see remorse within you we do not see a struggle at least not the struggle that we would hope to see for a Christian who wants to live for Christ. But, but at every point, church discipline is carried out, you see, in hopes of avoiding final discipline or ultimate discipline, discipline, this direct discipline of Christ. And so verse 16, or in verse 16, Christ says, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So in the end, let's, let's finish with the call of Christ to conquer. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Here it becomes clear that the Christian life is a battle. It's a struggle every day with sin. Sexual temptation in, in particular is every man's battle. To some degree, every Christian's battle. Some people uh, get all caught up in trying to figure out uh, when the battle of Armageddon will commence. I think it's already begun. The struggle is now. The battle rages in the present. Yes, it does matter what we're watching on the television and on the computer. Yes, it does matter how we relate to co-workers and neighbors of the opposite sex. Christ calls the church to conquer, and he does so with the promise that there are far greater delights to be known from his hand. Those who live for the flesh now trade an eternal reward for the momentary pleasures of sin. It's like Esau. It's worse than Esau, who traded his birthright for a single meal. So let us resolve today to conquer. As we have fallen in the past, let us return to Christ, for he will abundantly pardon. If we fall again tomorrow, let us cry out to Christ all the more, for it's his victory over sin and death by which we will conquer. Only let us never stop repenting. Let us not stop hoping for that day when Christ will return 
And as Paul says, he will deliver us from this body of death. And he will raise us up anew to our final victory. Amen. Let's pray. We do confess, O Christ, how easy it is for us to hold out particular areas of our life or particular sins in our behavior that we are not dealing with. We pray that uh, you would convict us and uh, encourage us, give us strength, give us resolve, and indeed grant that we would conquer, that we would live a full life of repentance, and that we would uh, not forget that our sin is not just our own but belongs to the church we pray that we will understand the burden the responsibility but yes the authority of the elders of the church to be watching over the congregation observing their faith and their life And we do pray that uh, our elders would be courageous and willing to confront us as they see need for that in their ministry to us. O Lord, bless us under the care of Christ. Lord Jesus, we know you love us. And uh, we pray that as our, our good shepherd, our great shepherd, you will uh, continue to care for us in all the ways that you do. And this we ask in Jesus' name, in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.